We're going to be uh, looking at a passage of scripture. It's Matthew chapter 5. We're going to spend about 25 minutes here, or maybe 30, uh, talking about this passage of scripture today. Um, if you happen to have a Bible app on your cell phone, there is a Bible app event for this, and that's a great way to follow along. It'll have the scripture references there in the notes, except for the passages from Matthew, or the verses from Matthew 5, starting at 17. Um, I will be... Uh, probably uh, having most of it on the screen, and you can see it. And by the way, um, we almost have the screens fixed. Have you noticed? This one has been on the whole time, right? We took the cable from this, and we put it on that one. That one, that one's bad now, right? So we're getting there, little by little, hundreds of dollars by hundreds of dollars. We're figuring this problem out. I want to say thank you to Travis. He is just a big, big help to me, and uh, he has, uh, he has, light- yeah, that's right. That's a good thing. Yeah. And everybody turn around and look at him, because Travis loves it when people look at him. There he <laughs> That's it. He's finding a new church now. Okay, yeah. uh, Travis loves to work behind the scenes. Buddy, you do a great, great job for us. We are thankful for your uh, gifts and talents and that you use them here, Travis. Thanks for that. Okay? So I want to begin, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, starting verse 17. I'm going to be reading that in a short time, but I want to begin by asking you a question. And this is just a question to, to be thinking about here, okay? And here it is. What is the difference between realizing a dream and having a dream come true? And I know at first you're just going to say, I don't think there is a difference between that. I mean, if you realize a dream, then it must have come true. And if the dream came true, then you're realizing it, right? But there is a nuance that I want to talk to you about. There's a nuance involved. To have a dream come true kind of feels like you've just stumbled upon it. And it was something that seemed unattainable. You could only dream about it. And it just happened. Uh, you never really thought about it. You never really thought that it would happen. But it had, or it did. So for Brad, <laughs> it was having a dream come true when he met Eddie Van Halen in a, in a diner in Chicago. I literally have a friend named Brad. Brad was a street evangelist. He used to go around, and he was that guy like the Willard preacher, you know, down at Penn State. But he would go all over the country. And one time on a, an evening, he walked into a diner in Chicago. And there was this guy with a lot of big guys around him. Those were the bodyguards. And he walked up and he said, hey, can I talk to you guys for a minute? And he started sharing the gospel. And one of the bodyguards says, you know who this is, right? It was Eddie Van Halen. Wow, that's like a a dream come true. Because Brad never thought that through in advance. He never said, wow, wouldn't it be cool to be able to talk to Eddie Van Halen? Wouldn't it be cool to bump into him? I think I'm going to work and see. Can I figure out his schedule? What city is he going to be in next? And, And he didn't orchestrate the dream. It was just a dream that came true. In contrast... When we realize a dream, that kind of carries with it the idea of having worked for it. Maybe working really hard for it to make it come about. You attained what you sought, what you set out to do. So you could say, Darren and Kim realized their dream when they opened their very own bed and breakfast. And that doesn't mean that Darren and Kim woke up one morning and, wow, this is a bed and breakfast, right? They worked really hard. They had a dream. They thought about it. They planned. They, they looked ahead into the future and they strategized until one day they, they saw their dream come true. They realized their dream. This is what I want to suggest to you, that realizing a dream usually comes about through forethought and hard work. And I want to suggest to you that God realizes a dream. Okay, that's difficult to imagine, God having a dream that he's been working toward. And we probably need to be careful not to dive too deeply into that kind of imagery. Yet the Bible does indicate that the redemption of humankind was an event that was planned in advance by God. It uses words like foreknew and 
predestines, which seem to suggest planning. And Jesus gives us even more of a suggestion when he's here on earth walking around. For example, one time he was at a wedding in Cana of Galilee and his mother said to him, hey, they're out of wine. And Jesus' response to her was, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. I got something planned. It's just not time for it, Jesus is saying. And then a few chapters later, five chapters later, in fact, in, in John 7, his brothers are suggesting he should go down to Jerusalem and make himself known. And uh, he says, you guys go ahead and go. My time has not yet fully come. And there it is again. I have this, I have this idea. I have this thing I'm going to do. And I'm definitely going to do it. But I'm planning it. I'm thinking ahead about it. When the Apostle Paul is writing to a young pastor named Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says these words in verse 9. He says, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own, listen to this word, purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But now it has been revealed through the appearance of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Listen to those last words again. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. So God laid it out at creation, and then God lived it out in Christ. And while the word dream seems inadequate, one might say that as Jesus is presenting the kingdom in the Sermon of the Mount, he's saying, we're realizing the dream. Do you see this? We're realizing the dream right now. But it was so much more than a dream. It was his plan that was as certain to happen as, the, as certain as that day and night occur on our planet. God determined it, and as soon as he did that, the dream would be realized. In Hebrews 12, too, we even read of Jesus having this hope, this thing in front of him, this dream that he was pursuing regarding our redemption. He says uh, that we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So it was the joy of our redemption that Jesus had dreamed of, that he had planned, and was completing when he came. In fact, as you look throughout Scripture, you see Jesus inviting us to realize the dream. So I want to jump to these five verses or so that we're going to read, 17, 18, 19, 20, four verses in Matthew 5, and uh, follow along as I, I read those. He says, Do not think, and this is Jesus, he's speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, nor the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands, and teaches others accordingly, will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great. In the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Huh. Enter the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that a dream? I mean, that's something that you might think about and say, yeah, I dream of, of going to heaven, of being in heaven. It's a dream to go to heaven. But I would say that that part of you that often thinks of that or occasionally thinks of that is looking for something other than streets of gold. 
You understand, we're not thinking about heaven as just I got the bigger house and I got the bigger television that I have here on earth. But the thing that makes heaven desirable to humankind is that we deeply seek, whether we recognize it or not, we deeply seek a relationship with the one who created us and the one who redeemed us. The dream is that humankind would recover what it had lost. To recover moral perfection that Adam and Eve had, Eve had at creation. To, to recover perfect relationships where they never had a marital squabble between the two of them. And to have peace with our maker where he walks through the garden in the cool of the day and we can have him in for a nice tea. And, and to, to recover that which sin took away when it entered the world. That's a great dream. And that is really what Jesus is all about. He came to seek and to save that which is lost, which is us and all of those things that we so value. Jesus' goal was to make us fit for the kingdom, to change us. And I want to say to you that even non-Christians, even people that don't profess faith in Christ, they kind of have that goal themselves. Not like I want to be part of the kingdom per se, but I want to be fit for that. I want to be okay. You know, years ago, there was a guy, his name was, I think it was Thomas Harris, wrote a book called I'm Okay, You're Okay, Transactional Analysis. That was over 50 years ago. Made a lot of money on that book, New York Times bestseller. And that phrase, I'm okay, you're okay, isn't that what you want? I mean, when you look on social media and you see people saying, you're not okay, you're not okay, you're not okay, that just gets ugly. And deep inside, you can have this sense of not okayness that you want rid of, no matter who you are, if you look inside, because no one wants to feel shame. No one wants to feel like they don't belong. No one wants to feel like they don't fit in. No one wants to feel like they are stained. And we dream of being okay. At least most of us do. Now, there are people that probably don't dream of this. Maybe their conscience has been seared like with a hot iron, and so they don't feel that sensitivity toward right and wrong. But most people, when they look at themselves honestly, they see elements of darkness inside themselves. They know when they look at themselves that they've done wrong. And they know what it feels like to carry the grief of guilt, to be embarrassed. And while it's not something we might phrase this way, we dream about being free of that. I dream about being free of, of saying things that I later regret, don't you? I, I dream about not embarrassing myself by doing that bad thing again. I, I dream of addictions being irrelevant. Wow, would that be great. I dream of, of walking in light with no darkness around. I think that's kind of the human dream that God has actually planted in our heart. But the problem is that we come up with human solutions to it. I want to suggest two of them today. One of the human solutions we come up with is this drive for self-perfection. I'm going to make it my dream to root out all the evil I find in any corner of my heart, and I am going to find it, and I'm going to get rid of it. I am going to, I am going to be pure. I am going to deal with sin. I, I, I am going to do this. And that dream, if you pursue it in that way, it becomes a nightmare. A personal nightmare of self-criticism, of self-rejection, of just self-anger. We often refer to Romans chapter 7 in recent months at Kerbinsville Alliance because I think it is so typical of how, how people feel today. The Apostle Paul is speaking in Romans chapter 7 and he says words that 
many of us could say, he says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. I have this desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I want to do, that's what I keep doing. What a wretched man I am. Yeah. I have this drive for self-perfection, but the harder I work on it, the more it seems like a pipe dream. In fact, the harder I work on it, the worse I seem to be. Self-perfection. It's just not going to happen. Still, (laughs) there are people who have that dream, and you've probably seen them. They have pushed the dream so hard into their life that suddenly the dream becomes their reality, and they think they made it. And everyone else looking on knows they didn't. But they become blind to their own inadequacy. This dream of being sinless, they, they begin to believe they are. By the way, those people aren't just in churches. People, people have told me, both people in churches and people outside of churches, I don't really think I sin. I, I don't do anything bad. Really? You never sin? Sit at this table. I can get you to sin in five minutes, buddy. <laughs> yeah. I might come out of it with a black eye, but I will get you to sin. All right. That's great. By the way, do you hear that little child? I love that child being here. Dad and mom, let him hear. Just let him be who he is, okay? All right. <laughs> when I saw you, I walked up the aisle and I saw you and I looked at you because the baby made a noise and I was smiling underneath my mask and then it occurred to me, they can't tell I'm smiling. They, think I'm, they probably think I'm like, what is that child making noise for? I love that child being here, you guys. Beautiful. So here's the guy, he says, I never sin. I, I, I never sin. Really, the Bible says if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And by the way, he's writing that to Christians. So anyone who says, I'm not sinning, they're dreaming is what they're doing. And they're driving, striving for self-perfection by their human means. There's a second way that the humans try to, to live this dream, and that is that they just try to do away with the rules, to get rid of the rules, to sidestep the rules. You know what? I'll never be perfect, so just forget it. Or maybe they say, the rules, they don't apply to me. Almost every one of us is that way with speeding, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a 55 zone because a lot of people can't drive as good as me, so those rules don't apply to me. That probably isn't going to work for you, right? But you've heard it. I don't want people telling me what to do. These rules are ridiculous. They just keep getting in my way. I, those rules need to be gone. And I get that. I mean, I'm not the first guy who pushes for self-perfection and then thinks I got it. But I am the second guy. I hate rules. They make me crazy. Did you know the Pennsylvania Game Commission has a rule that you cannot carry last year's hunting license in your wallet with this year's hunting license? <laughs> I guess they have their reasons. I dream of a world where rules like that just don't exist. Yeah. And I would guess that many people in Jesus' day dreamed of a world where rules didn't exist because the religious leadership of Jesus' day created rules for everything. Every little thing they had rules for. For example, you all know one of the Ten Commandments is remember the Sabbath and make it holy. Don't do any work on the Sabbath. You shouldn't do work on your Sabbath. Your manservant should not do work on Sabbath. Your female servant should not do work on the Sabbath. Your animals should not be doing work. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, what about that chicken? What about that chicken? What kind of work did your chicken do on the Sabbath? Laid an egg. That's what she did. And I need to know, what are we doing about that? And so you've got to know that the religious leadership made a law. We don't have enough laws. They're going to make another one. They made a law that said that if a chicken labored, laying an egg, on the Sabbath, that you could eat that egg, but only if you killed the chicken the following day. Yeah, how crazy is that? You think to yourself, why in the world would they do that? 
And that can move you to want to just do away with rules. It can move you toward understanding what Jesus was talking about when in Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, he speaks of religious leadership saying, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on people's shoulders. You can be sure there were people that just dreamed of getting rid of the rules to be lawless. Lawless. Did you hear that word? It's kind of interesting that one of the things that identifies the Antichrist in the Bible is he is a man of lawlessness. It says that twice in Second Thessalonians. Along about verse 3, it says, For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed for destruction. Hmm. I understand the appeal of the Antichrist. I mean, let's get rid of this rules. Let's get rid of this bureaucracy. Let's get rid of all this red tape. I think some people might follow the Antichrist just to get rid of the the rules. Jesus makes it clear. That's not what he's here to do. Jesus is not here to make you better at self-perfection, nor is he here to get rid of all the rules. He says it in verse 17, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come, not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And Jesus brings relief from the law, but not by abolishing it and not by making it so you can keep all the rules. There's a concept of right and wrong that is everlasting. Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, well, you know, the Bible, (laughs) times have changed. A lot of things in the Bible just don't apply anymore. How arrogant. Have you ever thought of how arrogant that statement is? It's saying that little old you living in August of 2020, this human race in August of 2020 has so well evolved that we are the pinnacle of all of civilization. Really? Ha! Have you looked around? Have you looked around? (laughs) Jesus says in verse 18, Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law, until everything is accomplished. Yeah. The rules count. We can't sidestep them. The concept of right and wrong is everlasting, regardless of who you are. I love Popeye the Sailor Man. Those are some really good cartoons right there. I was watching some cartoons with my grandson, and I happened to think of Popeye. He wasn't impressed by Popeye. You know what he likes? He really likes the monster on Bugs Bunny that has the sneakers on, you know, the monster in the tennis shoes. He really liked him. I like Popeye, though. What I like about Popeye is he has this saying, I am what I am. Have you heard him say that? I am what I am, and that's all that I am. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) That was perfect. It changed me to say that in my past, when my wife would call me out on some less than upright behavior, I would look at her and I would say, I am what I am. And then I would go ahead and do what I was planning to do anyway, even though it wasn't the right thing to do. What Jesus is saying is, you can't just erase the difference between right and wrong because of who you are. He's saying you can't just accept being angry because you have anger issues. He's saying you can't just validate your rebellious spirit because you have rebellious tendencies. He's saying you can't condone your own judgmental attitude because of the way you were raised. Right and wrong are concepts that transcend our opinions. 
and our desires. Because right or wrong come from the everlasting God. He defines what's right and wrong. We talked about this a few months ago. Is, is God good because he conforms to what is morally right? Or is that which is morally right good because it conforms to God? And in case you weren't here or weren't paying attention a few months ago, the answer is B. <laughs> what, what is right is right because it aligns with God's character. And God's character is never changing. Praise the Lord. Give thanks to our God for he is good. His love endures forever. His character never changes. And so right and wrong remain, regardless of spiritual climate, regardless of political opinion, regardless of media presence, regardless of social mores, regardless of our feelings, right is right and wrong is wrong. They find their definition in God and they find their fulfillment in God. And that's really the crux of the matter. This is what Jesus is trying to help his listener understand, and he's going to unfold this even further as he continues in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is, in his proclamation of the kingdom, Jesus is not advocating a compromise with right and wrong. He is not promoting lawlessness. He is not in favor of just throwing up your hands and saying, I guess I just can't do it. He is saying that right and wrong are unchanging, but I am here to solve your struggle with morality. That is what he is saying. He is not coming to obliterate morality. He is coming to fulfill morality. He says that in the kingdom, the law cannot be abolished. It cannot be set aside. So that in verse 19, at the beginning, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do accordingly is least in the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on at the end of that to say, but whoever practices and teaches these commands, he'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The law cannot be abolished. But here's the irony. And catch this irony. Regarding the law, Jesus is saying, fulfillment of the law is essential and it's impossible. (laughs) Fulfillment of the law is essential and it's impossible. Anyone listening to what he was saying when he gets to verse 20 there as they're sitting there on the side of the Sea of Galilee on that, on that hillside and Jesus sat down and he began to teach them and they're listening when he says the things he says, I tell you your righteousness, unless it surpasses that of the Pharisees who were the most righteous people as far as keeping the law that there ever were. Unless it surpa- surpasses them, you got no place in a kingdom. No place in the kingdom of heaven. And anyone listening to that would have just been scratching their heads saying, how in the world then is this going to work? How is it going to work? Fulfillment is essential, but impossible for you. Okay, you're starting to understand how someone might say, I just want to throw out the rules. I mean, if God's laying out these rules that I can't do anyway, why am I even trying? Why should I even bother? I just don't even care. I'm just going to do whatever it is that I want to do. Don't do that. Don't walk away. Don't miss what Jesus is coming to reveal because he knows you cannot fulfill the law yourself. But in the king, but you don't have to set it aside. In the kingdom, Jesus fulfills the law on our behalf. Jesus fulfills the righteous requirements of the law for us. I want to tell you one of my favorite theological truths. This is like my favorite thing in the whole world. My wife made peach pie. We had it last night, hot with ice cream. I like this better than the peach pie, right? It's this. It's twofold. And I want you to hear both of them. 
The first one you'll say, well, yeah, I knew that. Here it is. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. He submissively and passively allowed himself to be crucified in our place. He was as a sheep being led to the slaughter, and he didn't open his mouth. He allowed himself to be crucified on our behalf. He humbled himself and became a man, humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross, and allowed them to put him on the cross. He took our place there. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The scripture tells us that. It's my favorite thing. Christ died for sins. But remember, I said it's twofold. There's a second kind of obedience besides that passive obedience, because in all of those things I just mentioned, the lamb going to the slaughter is passive. Humbling yourself and becoming a man, that's passive. Allowing them to crucify you, that's passive. All that passive obedience was done to take away our sins, as though our our life was a whiteboard that children had scribbled all over with every color of marker, and it just looked like a brown, ugly mess. And Jesus, by his death, comes and wipes that clean. And now it's white and sparkling. That's his passive obedience by allowing, by the lamb, who was a lion, by the way, allowing himself to be crucified. He wiped your board clean. But it's twofold. There's a second kind of obedience in which he engaged when he obeyed the Father. His active obedience. Jesus actively obeyed the Father. He did what was required to fulfill all righteousness. The active obedience counts for us just like the passive obedience counts for us. You find that in Scripture in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 where it says, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, he is our righteousness, our holiness, he is our holiness, and our redemption, he is our redemption. So that when Jesus, when he was, when he was healing the leper, <laughs> He was doing that and crediting to our account as though we healed the leper. When Jesus was doing act of righteousness, like when he was, neither do I condemn you, go and leave your life of sin, and showing grace and mercy to the woman caught in adultery, he was doing that so it would be credited to our account, to our righteousness. And when and Jesus, man, when he's raising the dead, the widow of Maine, she's lost her son, and he, he stops the funeral and shows such incredible power and compassion for her and does that good deed, he is doing that act of righteousness, crediting it to our account so that we don't have a board that has been just messed up by children scribbling on it and has been cleaned off and is white and empty. We have a board that has been messed up by children, has been cleaned up by his passive obedience and has been filled up by his active obedience. So we have the righteousness of Christ. Wow, it's my favorite thing. It's so amazing that he would do that. And why in the world would I think that I need to self-perfect myself when he has done that? And why in the world would I think I don't want to deal with these rules? They're awful. Why would God make them when he has dealt with them? Why would I feel that way? It's my favorite thing. My favorite thing, that when you surrender to him, when you surrender to him as your savior, he fulfills all the righteous requirements of the law. And you don't have to. 
That doesn't mean you're cavalier. It doesn't mean you're careless. You haven't surrendered if you're that way, right? But it means you're not obsessive about it. And you're not depressed when you look at yourself. You don't have to look in the mirror and say, I hate that person. I feel such guilt about him. In fact, that comes straight from the pit of hell if you're a believer in Christ. And you don't have to worry anymore. Like, am I okay? I'm okay. You're okay. Am I okay, God? Absolutely. If you're trusting in Christ, you are okay. You don't have to have anxiety regarding your relationship with God. He's taken it all. He paid it all. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. And when you surrendered to him and trusted him, you got the stamp that says, you're okay, you're good to go. And as you continue to surrender to him, you see him changing your life, transforming you as you go. It just amazes me sometimes when I look at men in the men's group and I see how God has transformed them. I am absolutely amazed. And I know they did not do that in their own strength. They didn't do it on their own. He did it in them. You're reading this Sermon on the Mount in these verses, and at the end of verse 19, Jesus says that sentence when he says, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about being perfect. He's just saying, if you're following my commands, if you're practicing this, if you're walking in this direction, if you're walking beside me, and you're teaching others to do the same, you're great in the kingdom of heaven. You're one of mine. And he so much does not want you to be miserable. He so much does not want you to hate the rules and to hate yourself because you can't keep them. He wants you to know you couldn't do the right thing if your soul depended on it. But he did it for you. He did it for you because your soul did depend on it. As you trust him, he fulfills the righteous requirements of the law. He saves you and he changes you. He sanctifies you. I didn't mean to be that emotional this morning, but that truth just kind of got a hold of me. <laughs> In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing us what the kingdom looks like. It's a beautiful thing that he's showing us. And this kingdom derives from a dream that God had, a plan that he had since before the foundation of the world. And you might say these words. You might say, the dream is realized. Or you might say, the kingdom of God is at hand. And you'd be saying the same thing. The same thing. Jesus is real clear about what this kingdom is made up of, who it's made up of. It is not made up of people who have pushed the envelope and finally got their act together, so they finally are good. That is simply an impossibility to make yourself righteous, and there is no room in this kingdom for those who are living that dream, because it's a lie. There's no room for the self-righteous. It is not made up of people who have said, hey, I just can't keep the rules, I hate the rules, I'm not going to do anything with the rules, I'm all for lawless. That lawless... That's the name reserved for the Antichrist. It's not for that. Those in the kingdom are those who have a profound awareness of right and wrong, a keen sense of light and darkness, and have been disturbed because they have seen the darkness in their own souls, and they know they cannot possibly rid themselves of the guilt and shame that accompanies that, so they have trusted Christ to do that for them. And they've said, I just can't do it, Jesus. You're going to have to do it. And in humility, they receive forgiveness from him, his righteousness as their own. That's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God. Jesus has done a heavy lifting. He invites you to lay down your pride, to trust him. Not just to become a Christian, but as you are a Christian, to lay down your pride and say, I can't do it. I need you to do it, God. I need you to do it. And he makes you part of the dream. I'm going to pray. (laughs) 
that we would all be aware of that and that we would all have received that, that we would have received him. So if you're comfortable doing so, let's stand together and we'll pray. So I just want to tell you, I get really embarrassed when I get that fired up when I preach. We have visitors here. I don't normally preach like this. I'm normally really tame, (laughs) even boring. (laughs) But man, I'm so passionate about that truth. And I have found so many people in my life who have been who have been confused regarding what the kingdom looks like. It's all grace. And it's all Christ's grace. And I want to pray that we would have that reality stitched to the, the inner lining of our heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your great love for us. We are thankful for the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. <laughs> because there was a dream that was going to be realized because you we're going to make it happen. Thank you for inviting us to be part of that dream. Thank you for inviting us to be your followers, your, your redeemed ones, your chosen ones, your transformed ones. I pray for anyone here who's never opened their heart to you and said, that's what I need. I need you, Jesus, to pay it all. I pray that they would just say that in the quietness and the silence of their heart, that their spirit would say to your spirit, forgive me for thinking I could be self-righteous. I trust Jesus' death, and I will follow him. And I pray as well for those who made that decision a long time ago, but somewhere along the way got confused about what it meant, what it meant to be your follower. And they felt like what they had done was been maybe sold a pack of goods, that it was supposed to be a light burden, but it feels so heavy. It does not feel heavy, God, because you, Jesus, bear it. And as we follow you, you are delighted with the progress we make in a way that I'm kind of delighted at when I see my grandkids. You have such a love for us, God, and a desire to see us walk near you. May we walk near you in the shadow of your grace, always. In Christ's name, amen.